Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling and hopefully has an arsenal of guns while waiting for crazy people to get through his fence line is my best friend, Aaron. Yeah, I might actually be able to do that because you know why? No one's going to tell me no gun 15,000 times in a row. This is I'm true. going to just take what I want yeah. and prepare. Take it. But no, I'm not a gun guy. I do think I might be a trap guy, though. I really respond strongly to the use and setup in this episode of how to defend a settlement. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's up my alley. It's Home Alone-esque. Yeah, there's, just, there's, a, there's a high level of creativity coming from Bill, and I can definitely respect that in this episode entitled Long, Long Episode, excuse me, Long, Long Time. This is, um, I believe... Long, long episode is correct. Yeah, I had forgotten that this is, I believe, the longest of the first season, uh, apart from the first, which is essentially like one and a half episodes, as we sort of alluded to being a a prologue and chapter one of a video game. But this was definitely lengthy. And if you know me from feeling film, you know that, you know, the longer does not necessarily equal the better, plus... The episode subject matter was a little questionable. We'll get into that. But um, I wanted to really start with a question. This is the second time through for both of us. We both sort of had an interesting reaction to this particular episode the first time. And I wanted to kick it over to you, Aaron, and ask, what was your reaction this time around? And kind of preface that by giving your thoughts initially watching this episode the first time. So I think... The first time I saw this, the most immediate reaction is one of just pure surprise. There's a jolting nature to it when you're expecting a certain thing. So we've mentioned this in our previous episodes of of this series that, you know, we both are coming to this as incredibly diehard fans of video games. And so we're expecting a certain thing in adaptation. Now, I think we both kind of knew that they might do something a little different. But this episode is one of my favorite to play, one of my favorite chapters in the game because of what you do. And in the video game, just for some context for the listener who hasn't played, you show up to Bill's town as Joel and Ellie and you go through and you meet Bill and you kind of navigate all the cool traps and the way he set up his town and you go through this town with Bill trying to locate parts and ultimately a battery. Well, not a battery. I guess you're trying to get a truck to get out of there. But it's essentially the same thing that they're looking for. It culminates. There's It's a lot of fighting. There are a lot of infected all over this town constantly. And it culminates in one of the bigger, cooler set pieces of the game in a high school gymnasium, which is a big, big battle against one of the big daddy infecteds. So I'll be honest, Patrick, I kept saying, leading up to this episode, I was like, give me the bloater, give me the bloater, give me the bloater, give me the bloater. Like I wanted this infected and I wanted this set piece to be represented in the show. People listening to us right now who haven't played the games are just probably shaking their head like, This is not a love story. No, there's not a love story. None of this happens in the game. The only mention of Frank is in his suicide note, which we find at the very, very end of the episode. And if I remember right, it's actually optional. Like, I'm pretty sure that you can find it if you do enough searching, but you can just go right on through this episode without ever knowing Bill had a partner or lost a person that was with him in this town. So, context out of the way, that was... Hard for me to reconcile, Patrick, because I couldn't wrap my head around going from expecting this infested, heavy battle through the town, especially with I was excited when Nick Offerman got cast because in this particular chapter of the game, he and Ellie have such an incredible amount of banter between the two of them. And I was really wanting that to be replicated and we didn't get any of it. And so I had a hard time with it. I have since come to understand why they made the choice because I've listened to them explain it and I can take a little bit of a 30,000 foot view and see, I guess, some some reasons why it 
makes sense and think it enhances things, but just from a pure what I wanted out of this versus a critical, like, does it work standpoint, it's not what I wanted. I agree with pretty much everything you said. And while this isn't my favorite part of the game to play, it is probably the most dynamic because of everything that happens. Like, it is brutal how you get through Billstown complete with the, the bloater at the end. But there's other parts of that sequence of that whole chapter in Billstown that I wanted to see along with the bloater. I wanted to see the upside down Joel shooting at crazy infected coming at him. I thought that was, it's fun to play. And I'll admit that that's probably a hard thing it's to shoot. It's hard to play. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It, it's difficult. I mean, I die several times in that moment, but that was something I would love to have seen cinematically. How do you, how do you film that? How do you get first person point of view? And so my wish list was up there. My disappointment, I think, came from the fact that, like a lot of people who didn't like this episode, it felt like one of those throwaways, like filler. Adam and I have talked about this, particularly on our Stranger Things coverage, that there is, I believe in season two, we've watched a lot of Stranger Things. I think it's in season two, there's what's considered like this pocket episode where one of the characters leaves the main town that the television show takes place in and goes on this little adventure and they meet other people and they have sort of like this little comic book adventure. And up to this point, Stranger Things 5 has not released yet, but up to this point, none of those characters from that episode where this main character meets, we don't see them at all. They have not come back. They've not made any kind of impact on the series as a whole. And at the time when I watched it, I enjoyed the episode. I recognized that it felt like a little pocket episode because it just was completely like not even related to what was going on in the main story. But we also reconciled the fact that if you went back and you placed it someplace different based off of how that little story played out, if you actually put it in a different order, it actually would be kind of cool. Interesting as we could fit it into this revised sort of chapter list of Stranger Things 2, we haven't seen those recurring characters. We haven't seen those characters that this person meets. And I'm like, what's the point? And that is where I was left with this episode. Because both times through, I was really trying to reconcile some of my personal issues with it and also my fan issues. And I left leaving with the same question. What's the point? I don't believe that if you have to ask the director what the point is or to explain something that it invalidates a movie. I mean, yes, there, there, there's art out there in the form of television and movies where it's a little too heady and I have to watch it a couple of times and through a podcast or an article or something, the director helps me out. Here's why I did what I did. And I can respect that just because I don't get it, just because I don't agree with it. I don't necessarily throw it out. Where I have trouble with this episode is that upon seeing the rest of the season, I don't see where this fits. I don't see where it impacts the rest of the story. There's a small theme that I'll address when it comes up. But apart from that, I really had a hard time thinking that the first 13 minutes of the episode and the last 15 minutes of the episode could have been all we needed because it was bookended with Joel and Ellie going to Bill and Frank's town, finding a letter, getting some explanation, raiding, getting Bill's truck, and then leaving. Like this is a chapter of a game where not a lot happens. And there's 45 minutes of a story about two people whose life doesn't impact Joel or Ellie, at least the way I saw it. Now, I'm willing to be wrong. If there's an agenda attached to that, fine, respect it, don't agree. But if there's something else that makes it more meaningful, I'm willing to hear that. And even if I don't agree with it, I'm willing to respect that. Let me give you what I believe is the other side of this. Again, whether or not this changes either of our opinions on it or what we like or don't like, I think this is the goal that was trying to be achieved. The world of The Last of Us is extremely bleak. And as we continue to go through this show, we will see that repeatedly over and over and over. And if you've played the game, you understand that it is gigantically full of misery. And like the amount of hope is only really tied to Ellie in this entire universe pre this show. Ellie is the key. She is the hope that we can get back to some sort and semblance of humanity. There are little brief 
moments of positivity out in the world that they come upon, but they aren't very big. And I think for an audience that is engaging with this in a non-interactive way where you're not just shooting bad things that are coming at you all the time, if you went with the kind of game-accurate, fully bleak world and didn't put anything great out there in it, it would be really hard to stomach for 10 episodes or whatever. I don't even remember how many this is. I think that's part of what they were going for. And that whether or not, again, we agree with the way they chose to do it, the goal was to infuse the world with more hope and say, guess what? Somewhere out there, this is an example of what probably did happen. There were probably people who survived and were able to get through this and live a full life, a satisfying life for themselves in the midst of this great, horrible, awful event. And so I think that was part of their intent was to break up the just nonstop onslaught of like, it's it's all going to end poorly. Okay. Feeling. So I can get behind that. I would prefer that you give it to me at the halfway point because we're only two episodes in. What bleakness have we experienced? If you did what I said, because I'm right, no, I'm kidding. If you did, if you took this story and you created the the bookended parts of it, made it a 30 to 40 minute story of Joel and Ellie on their way to Bill and Frank's, they find this mysterious note that has great mystery box elements to it. Don't come upstairs, take what you need and go. And then we, some kind of artifact in like episode five Joel finds of some kind, like he sees a a piece of fabric or they have this conversation that they have on the road in like two or three episodes. Then we flash back to this episode about Bill and Frank and that we're reminded maybe there are people out there that lived a life that was better even amongst all this craziness. I mean, I, I can't get there cleanly, but I need to live in the world of mis- of misery and crap in order for you to give me like, oh, and in a, in a season that has nine episodes, the fifth episode would have been perfect for this. Not because of what's happening in episodes two, three, and four, but it's, you know, mathematically the midway point. Give us a reprieve if that's part of your intent and then tell that story. When you give it to me only an episode after Tess dies, I need to grieve with that a little bit and sit with that for a little bit. Because you're right, the nature of the story is just brutality after brutality after brutality. And so if you're going to inject some form of hope in the form of this sort of pocket romance, I'm fine with that from a story standpoint. It's just too soon because I don't care. I don't care that we're getting we're getting to know Joel and Ellie and you then sort of say, oh, yeah, let's forget about them for about 45 minutes. We're going to introduce you to Bill and Frank, the love story of the apocalypse. And I'm just like, I don't care at this point. You're right. It has nothing to do with Joel and Ellie. It does not move their story forward at all yeah. in the slightest. Right. And that is my biggest complaint about the whole thing yeah. is that the beginning of this episode, I'd forgotten that the beginning and the end were Joel and Ellie because (laughs) everything I remembered from this was just this very distinct, like rom-com-ish, like central part, not rom-com, but like romantic drama that's in the center of this episode. But I actually really enjoyed this time around everything that is beginning and end with Joel and Ellie. And I think you're right. I think it just breaks it up and it gives us these two characters that literally have no meaning to our story going forward whatsoever. And they don't, interact our characters ongoing psyche in the same way that meeting Tommy early on or, or meeting Sarah and losing Sarah do those are like defining characters in these people's lives. It's not like Joel brings up bill for the next seven episodes because he's like so distraught. He's like, yeah, lost another friend and and let's, let's take his car, you know, and some guns and let's go. Like, it's just another day. So that is frustrating because it does feel so unnecessary to the plot. For lack of a better word, forced in there to create this romance and give people this other thing to root for. It's not my favorite episode. No, I mean, me either. And I will say this. If the intent is to create that reprieve of hope, spoiler alert, there are other episodes in 
this season that have the opportunity to do that. Maybe not for very long, but there's also a potential to create brand new characters that I feel would be more effective than the Bill and Frank storyline. Because essentially, it's like a Rogue One moment where you create an entire narrative based off of one line in a crawl. (laughs) You've basically created an entire story around an insinuation based off of a magazine. Write what you're going to write, do what you're going to do. But even whatever my personal convictions about sexual orientation aside, if this were a heterosexual relationship, it still wouldn't feel really great because I don't know these people. I didn't know them before the episode started. And throughout the rest of the season, I don't, they don't refer back to them. If If these were brand new characters, I would probably feel the same way. And so I think even if you did this later with other characters that aren't part of the game. Which they do later. Yes. In the show. And it's actually part of the game's canon as well. And it makes more sense. And it affects the characters that we are caring about directly. That's what what I was alluding to is that you have opportunities there. But even if you didn't, you could introduce characters later on. And so I think that that would have been for me a better way to integrate the intent of what the what Mazin and Druckmann were trying to do. So it felt a little cheap. It distracted. But I think overall, even at the lowest of the episodes for me, there's a lot of good stuff to talk about. And we'll go ahead and just kind of get into that. So the first thing I want to point out is that this is the first episode that actually doesn't have a cold open. We start with the credits. That's kind of that's kind of interesting. Boo. Uh, <laughs> Bring it back. Like the, I was so disappointed like cold originally. Okay, yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> And, uh, and so after the credits roll, we're in the river and the, or the woods area. Joel is pulling rocks out of the river and stacking them up sort of zen-like. I thought that was kind of cool. We also find out that we're 10 miles west of Boston, courtesy of the great Last of Us font. Ellie's chilling, eating what Joel gives her, and trying to make small talk. And she starts to bring up about what happened in the last episode. This was really interesting because I thought what Joel thought, don't apologize, you don't have to apologize. And she's like, uh... I'm not apologizing. And she says, don't blame me for something that isn't my fault. Like she basically says, I get all this stuff that happened, but this was not on me. Okay. I am cargo at this point. And I thought that was pretty ballsy of Ellie to say that to him. Yeah. I thought that the start of this part is just incredibly moving and powerful coming off of what we end the last episode with being Tess's death. And Joel just casually and melancholically, uh, you know, creating this cairn on a riverbed to bury Tess. And I, this is an ongoing thing I love about the show is it's not lingering there. It's not going out of its way to try and make it something it's not. It's a simple moment because the world is simple now. And he just builds a thing of rocks. And I believe he might leave like a jacket or something there. I couldn't tell exactly what he leaves, but it, it's just, some small item that reminds him of hers or that was hers. And then they just move on and that's it that, you know, it's over. You got to keep going. And I I just thought that was beautiful. And then, yeah, like you were saying the dialogue from that first line right there, where she says you wanted a battery and you made a choice. Don't blame me for something that isn't my fault. I was like, Whoa, okay, girl go. Like she's going to stand up for herself. And from that point all the way up until we get to bills, Dude, the banter is just, I mean, it is like, pew, 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 pew. It starts, it's exactly what we know and love of the game because you're walking so much of the game. Yeah. And you're just walking from place to place. And so the characters are talking to each other. It's one of the best parts of the narrative and how it's driven to you. Uh, And we start getting a good example of that here. Yep. And that walking montage is something that I found really uh, entertaining. It's quiet and peaceful. It sort of accentuates what you were talking about, the simplicity of life right now. They're in the country. They're in the rural part. There's not a city. They're between cities, I think. Ellie starts asking about Bill and Frank and about that scar on Joel's head. And he says, someone shot at him and missed. I'm like, okay, that's cool. And then there's a yet another attempt at getting a gun. And of course he says, no, <laughs> it's just, it's not going to stop. She's going to get a gun at some point, whether he gives it to her or not. It's uh, <laughs> by the time I got to Bill's house, I was like, she's going to get one of these guns. I'm pretty sure there's enough of them there that she can just get one. 
Then they get to Cumberland Farms, this little convenience store, and I actually ate this up because this is the first instance that we really get to see the scavenging. Now, we've seen a little bit of it in Boston about with him and Tess gathering stuff, but this is the first time that I was called back to the video game where this is one of the things that you do. Like before you go out and start your next encounter, you can go to these places and you can pick up ammo, you can pick up letters and little things like that and just explore this really hit the spirit of those types of like moments in the game. There's a little wink wink at MK2. That's all I'll say about that video game, which I did not notice the first time I watched this, but glad I noticed it this time. Yeah, that's also very specific to the game. It's one of my favorite things is in the video game, they come upon the same thing, a little convenience store, and she also runs straight to, well, I guess we're the character. So if you are seeing every single corner of every single building the way that I do to make sure you collect everything. One of the things you can come upon is a video game cabinet and Ellie makes very similar comments in it. It's not MK2, but it is a fighting game that was created in this universe. And she makes a very similar statement about the use of a fatality, essentially describing what is a Mortal Kombat fatality and how she wishes she could do it. And I like that a lot. And I like how it will be something we remember later on in the show as well. She says, quote, I had a friend who knew all about this game. I just smiled. <laughs> the sarcasm is good here. Ellie says, is there anything bad in here? Just you. Ah, getting funnier. And she just leaves and goes to the back room. <laughs> like, Dang, I have got to wonder how much fun Pedro Pascal and she had just saying these lines. It was just great. They've become really close. I've seen so many pictures of them on Instagram and so many posts from Bella about her relationship with him that it is just, it's clear that they truly did bond. And I think a big part of it is what you're saying. Like, it's so natural the way that these two banter back and forth. It's, oh man, it's music to the ears. Yeah, it really is. So, as she is leaving, she looks around, finds a hole in the ground, and then goes into it. And I'm like, bad idea, Ellie. But, you know, you do you. She finds some tampons. Yay! And then hears something. And then sees something. And this is where my deep, like, movie voice comes in. It's a trapped infected. You know, it's like... And it was kind of creepy. Because this guy was almost, like, contorted. And all you could see was his head and him just going... Rah, rah. And I'm like, at that point, okay... I know that he was not able to do anything. That's the moment that I would die in the game, in, in this, in the show for this episode. Cause somehow he would get free and I would freak out and I would die. So that's my die <laughs> moment for, for this episode. Cause I can't, episode? I can't die at Bill and Frank, at least not involuntarily. I might die voluntarily at True. certain points, but no, this is the moment for me. This is psychotic behavior. I was disturbed by Ellie and the way in which she, the look on the face and the way she approaches it tilting her head and in this depraved curiosity and then cutting into the forehead as if to like dissect it and see what would happen without any sense of real fear of it. It was really just, it got under my skin, like watching her do that. It tells you a lot about who Ellie will, the capacity. Neil Druckmann, the creator of the games in the world says this, multiple times as he has talked about The Last of Us Part 2, the video game, he'll say Ellie's capacity for violence. Ellie is not someone who just was a perfect little angel and got converted into the thing that she will become. Ellie has this in her all along, and we watch as she progresses and wrestles with it. And this is a great example of that right off the bat, where that's not how I would react, Patrick, or you. A side note is just that the effects work on this. Again, like anytime we're seeing these infected up close, we've mentioned how incredible it is. Again, the cut and then like the spores that are like kind of inside that sort of come. It just, it's amazing, amazing practical effects and makeup work. Yep. She literally got under his skin too. So that's two for two <laughs> between you and him. <laughs> that should be in the pun book. Yeah, well. <laughs> oh, sorry. We're not there. Yeah. But yes. <laughs> well, if you listen to this show long enough, listeners, you know that puns are part of AOS. So I'm on point here with that. Anyway, after that encounter, she hears Joel calling for her. She makes her way back up to the main area. And it's interesting 
that she doesn't tell him about the infected. Like I never hear her mention, Hey, guess what was down there? So kind of keeping that to herself, thought that was kind of interesting, an interesting choice directorially to have her not say anything. And then they leave without the shotgun. So this is yet another thing that I remember from the game is that while Joel can carry a ton of stuff with him, he can't carry everything and that sometimes he switches guns out if he's got bullets or something like that. But I love that, you know, he's like not much ammo out there for one of these. And so he makes a choice to put that gun down and keep his, uh, I think it's his uh, revolver instead and not carry the other one. I took offense to this, Patrick. Okay. As someone who prioritizes a shotgun in the video game, first of all, this is accurate. So I can't really hate on him because that is a detail again where it really is scarce in the video game as well. Like the more powerful the weapon, the less ammo you will find for it because the game wants you to not be able to just use that nonstop. But it is the thing that I want to use the most and I like to use the most. And I was just thinking to myself, Joel, you're an idiot. Take the stinking shotgun because the shotgun is your best bet. What are you doing? I thought that this was a fail moment for Joel. I thought that he chose poorly in the words of the Grail Knight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to each his own. In any case, uh, he did not give Ellie that gun, even though there's nothing in it. <laughs> no, <laughs> so Ellie can't have that either. She can't have that. I don't think he would have given Ellie a water gun at this point, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> or maybe a sandwich. She's fine with the sandwich just to throw at the infected. So then they're back on the road, and they find this crash plane that Ellie is envious of Joel for having the ability to actually have gone up and fly, uh, flown in one. And this just kind of reminds us that Ellie doesn't know about the world that we do. We take so much for granted. And so she thinks, man, that's so cool that you get to do that. And he's like, I hate flying. And she's like, but you got to fly. That's awesome. And he's like, not for $15 for a sandwich, you know, <laughs> and just all the things that I hate about flying. Uh, he calls that out, but she's like, it doesn't matter because you're in the air. And then there's more exposition about how the virus started. Uh, they said the best guess is that the cordyceps mutated and got into the food supply. You um, talked about this in the last episode. The the wheat was the the main kind of traveling. Or so I figured it out before the showrunners. Is what you're you basically me. did. So you're definitely smarter. This is why you should have written this episode. I think so. to say, look, guys. You know, I've played the game more than Neil Druckmann has, so I should get some... We would be in a high school gym for a set piece. I promise you that. If I, was right this, if I was right this video. Exactly. So with you on that, I love how when Joel names off the different items, this is a really great kind of acting moment for Pedro. He is talking about the things that it gets into, and he hesitates on one of them. There were certain brands of food that were sold everywhere, all across the country, across the world. Bread, cereal pancake mix. And I think in that moment, he's thinking about Sarah, about birthday stuff. And, you know, it's just, it's a small little thing. I would love to believe that Pedro was like, I'm going to hesitate here because this was, this was a moment for me. My, my daughter, the night that she died, she was going to make me pancakes that day. And it just, it kind of hits you like, wow, yeah, that flashbulb memory, crazy. Without having to do anything like a flashback or anything, not making it dramatic, just a moment, just a real quick pause. And then he moves on. He says that Friday night, September 26, 2003 was the date. And I looked it up. It definitely was a Friday <laughs> of, of 2003. Also, fun fact, nice. this is the night that Robert Palmer, and the English singer-songwriter of Addicted to Love and, uh, and other such songs, died of a heart attack at 54. So in our world, there was significance to this date. The first infected and the death of Robert Palmer. Maybe they're connected. Maybe Robert Palmer was the first infected. Ate pancakes. He ate pancakes, and he died. <laughs> <laughs> and then became infected. No, he didn't die. He just became infected. There we go. So he's addicted to something else. He's addicted to fungus. <laughs> I will also add, I love, after this explanation part, especially because of all of the banter we've had during this whole walking segment, Ellie says thank you to Joel. Very important moment, I thought, because she was acknowledging that he was giving her what she had asked for finally, which was some explanation. And he did so without being rude or sarcastic about it. And for once, she was grateful for it. And I just thought that was like really meaning. Yeah, it stood out to me because it was not the way they usually talk to each other. Well, it's it's a great observation that you made, Aaron, because he even says best guess. He doesn't say, I know this. This is just kind of what I assume. And this is what I observed. And I think that 
moments like that show her that he can be truthful with her. He's not covering her up. He's not holding things back. Like she deserves to know what happened as best as he could tell. I agree with you. I think that was great. As they're walking, he's recommending leaving the road and then going another way because he says there is stuff up there you shouldn't see. And of course, she's like, whatever, I'm excited, I'm curious. And then she goes up and she sees the dead bodies that were killed by Fedra because there was no room at the inn. And by the inn, I mean the QZ. I like the segue into the flashback because we see the fabric of the kid, of the mother, there, and we know what happened, but we flash back and the kid is being Incredible held by his, by his mother. And I'm like, oh. it's just like the it's just like the first episode where it's like it's only in reverse. We see the kid, and then later we see his shoes, and now we're seeing dead kid's fabric, and then we see the kid alive. I'm like, that kid and his mom did not make it to the QZ. They were lied to. And I think, let me just say this, I think that in light of what you just said, there's such a great contrast. Joel's telling her the truth, and she's running up on a thing where it's a visualization of lies. So all these people were probably told they were going to the QZ, when in actuality, they were going to get killed. That little accent moment was like exclamation like holocaust yeah that's exactly what it felt like when he says dead people can't be infected that really put the exclamation point on that scene as we transition to the flashback so it was really powerful and they just get it overall they understand how to transition not just in one moment but from scene to scene to scene we get the full-on banter 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 transitioned into the explanation and the very sweet thank you to the very serious, like, here's this pile of bodies and the transition to the past. And then what do we get? The best opening line for a character maybe in the series is we zoom out and we get Bill saying, Not today, you new world order jackboot fucks. And it's just like, oh, here we go. Like, I mean, it's just, to me, it's just such great show running to be able to do that from a mood tonal perspective i i eat it up it's a great balance and you're right it takes subtlety it takes the ability to understand what's happening in the scene and what actors need to say what and you're exactly right seeing this transition and how it sort of (laughs) is quantified by bill's comment we're now in a brand new scene so we've exited joel and ellie for at the time i think it's just going to be a minute and it turns out to be 45 but Despite how I feel about the character in this episode, man, the casting for Bill was spot on. I absolutely adore this casting because it makes perfect sense. When that when they announced Nick Offerman, I was like, it's going to be perfect because Nick Offerman has this ability to be so dry and mean and just cutthroat if he needs to that I would believe that. The beard by itself is going to sell me on it. Like he is great in this. And I was so excited to see him in the shadow looking out over his like CCTV and the way that they show his survivalist persona is fantastic. Like he's raiding gas stations, a home Depot, a gas plant, a wine store, all using that iconic blue truck that we're familiar with at the end of the chapter in the game. He's got these big honking generators, which I'm like, I could have used that during the tornado here in Arkansas. Just, I need Bill in my life. You know, I need, I need the survivalist Bill in my life. That scene finishes with this whole spread of CCTV spying some infected getting shot while he's having dinner. Like he was a smart enough guy to say, I'm going to have a gas stove. Like that's partly why we switched to gas from our electric because power goes out. We can still cook noodles or whatever we need to. Oh, I thought you were going to say in case of a zombie apocalypse. Well, in case that too, you know, I mean, (laughs) among the things that could happen. Yes. Power goes out. We get attacked by infected. Yeah. Whatever the case is. But this is where we see those great traps on display that are also mimicked in the game. The, the line mines, I think is what I call them where, he sees one just kind of hit and get the trip mine. And then he goes, never gets old. Like he's watching an episode of like one tree hill or something. It's just so phenomenal. Just he's, this is his world, man. This is his world and he's used to it. It's amazing. I love the intro to bill. It did not disappoint whatsoever. The jovial way in which he is going around as soon as they're gone. And he like sets out to go raid the town all by himself. It's like, I've got this playground. You can feel the joy in him and the like freedom and he's having like you just expressed he's having fun 
he is genuinely enjoying his life in this moment compared to what it had been previous leading up to this, of course. And yeah, getting to see the booby traps in action was just a, a delight to me yeah. as well. I was just like, I could watch that happen. I would get old and I know you, but so I think they did a good job of showing it, but just it's awesome to see someone set up a trap and then to watch it be effective like that. And yeah. I thought that was a great, great intro scene to Bill's town. Yeah. After that, the episode flashes forward or moves forward four years. And I was reminded of how many years take place because we're so far removed from Joel and Ellie. I'd forgotten that we flashed back so far. I like that there was no specific time frame that was listed. It was just like, we're back with Bill to intro to introduce him. And then the next scene is four years later. So four years from what? I'm not really concerned about that. But there's definitely a lot of time that passes in order to tell the story. At this point, an alarm goes off and he sees that someone or something got caught in this like pit trap that he set. And this is where he meets Frank from the Baltimore QZ on his way to the Boston QZ. He tells him he's part of a group of like a dozen people. I don't know where those people went. Maybe they got, you know, became infected or got eaten by infected. But Frank is apparently the last one. He is, you know, holding his hands up. You know, Bill is being Bill, you know, very much a cautious guy. And we get the ladder that comes down to let Frank out. Frank comes out. He's convincing Bill to give him a free meal. He's like, hey, thanks for getting me out of this hole. And uh, can you also feed me? And, and I really, I laughed out loud when Bill says, If I feed you, then every bum you talk to about it is going to show up here looking for a free lunch. And this is not an Arby's. Well, Arby's didn't have free lunch. It was a restaurant. Arby's was a restaurant. It didn't give away free <laughs> <I know>. food. <laughs> that was... It's like, I thought good. that was hilarious as well. That was yeah. great. <laughs> so, so Bill reluctantly says, okay. And he actually gives him a shower and fresh clothes. So good on Bill for you know going the little extra mile by not just saying, you eat my food, you get out. No, he's like, you're going to get a shower and you know put some, put some fresh clothes on before you, you have a meal. And then we're at dinner. And Frank is exploring the surroundings of the house before Bill comes out with food. Frank's elated with the sight and the taste of food. And, and why not? I mean, this is, this is a, I don't know how far removed from the date of the infection. It's obviously been several years because of the fact that there's a QZ. He's just literally eating it up. And after he finishes, he says, guess I'll be going then. And then Bill nods. And I'm like, I do too. I'm like, yeah, okay. You're good. You got a shower. You got some clothes. Let's move on. Because again, this is my first time reaction is like, great. I'm ready for him to leave and then for Bill to start killing infected <laughs> and for Joel and Ellie to show up and let's meet a bloater at some point. <laughs> but that doesn't happen. Frank instead intrudes a little bit and goes to play the piano and uh, really just ingratiates himself <laughs> with this house. <laughs> There's another great line that, that Bill has where Frank says, wow. You know how much these are worth? Currently nothing. <sighs> and then um, Frank starts playing Linda Ronstadt terribly. He convinces Bill to play. And then he says, and then I'll leave. And I'm like, no, you won't. You're just not leaving. From here, they kiss awkwardly. And as I summarized in my notes, they go up and have man sex. And this is the part where I'm just like, all right, we're good. And I have no problem sarcastically saying that I just skipped this both times because that's not something that I'm comfortable watching. And... I know what happens, so there's nothing specific that I think is taking place during that scene that really pushes the plot along. So we're left with that. Yeah, so I, I have a couple thoughts. Okay. First of all, I just want to start by saying I think that the performances throughout this entire segment by Murray Bartlett and Nick Offerman are incredible. Yeah. I think they are both just amazing in their roles, doing what they are meant to be doing per the show. So I love the two of them together, just the way that they can interact with each other. To me, that they really work. The sequence at the beginning with the shower and the dinner, wonderful in conveying the feeling of what it would be like to have genuine company for the first time in four years. Agreed. Like, I think it was four years. I was tracking the, the dates. It's like, it's got the awkwardness and the reluctance of it, how you'd be a little bit nervous about this other person, but also just the clear 
reward they're getting psychologically from this desperate need you would have for human fulfillment of relationship of any kind and interaction of any kind. So I loved that. I thought that since the show decided to go full in on they're going to be in a romantic relationship, that at the beginning of this, the subtle hints were there and set that up well. I think it starts off by treating their sexuality with respect and Bill saying he doesn't seem like the type to cook a fine meal and Frank saying, yes, you do. And the, the look on Bill's face in that moment, to me, I don't want to use the word betrayed as if it's like some horrible thing, but it, like it showed that he's right. Like he has pegged Bill for what Bill is. The piano scene starts off really beautifully. I liked it a lot. The awful singing by Frank and then the very beautiful singing, very beautiful and raw. It's not like, gorgeous like you'd put it in a recording studio but just I thought it was so heart-wrenchingly honest from Bill and Nick Offerman I thought that it was wonderful I loved that song I'd never heard it before Patrick and I've come to like just adore it even Linda Ronstadt's version at the end of this my issue is just with the fast movement of this whole thing and this is just a Hollywood issue it's not even necessarily it's not a gay thing or a straight thing Hollywood believes that if you like someone or attracted to someone for any reason that you are in love that night and you must have sex to consummate that new attraction or else it is meaningless. Like you can't possibly mean that you love them unless you say it and you do this thing. That was my issue with this whole thing is how we went from getting to experience that first moment of finding another human being in four years and we accelerated within the matter of less than an hour into we're in bed together and I'm teaching you how to have sex with a man for the first time. Like it, it was just such a rocket ship to me that it doesn't work. And Frank says specifically to Bill, I'm not a whore. I don't have sex for lunches, not even great ones. So if I do this, I'm going to stay for a few more days. Is that okay? And I'm like thinking you're kind of acting like a whore. Like, like I'm sorry, yeah. but buddy, like if, if your only goal is like, how can I get this guy into bed? Just again, whatever you believe about this, that should take time if this relationship is as truly deep as we are supposed to believe it will become later on. He actually, and I hate this also, Patrick, in storytelling in Hollywood, when you're like making out and then you're like, oh, by the way, my name is Bill. I didn't even tell you that yet. Like, I just, I hate that trope. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Because the real life implication of this type of interaction between humans is one night stands and a feeling of devalue or worthlessness ultimately if you just continue on this path because you don't actually, this is not how it ends up. It's not romantic like this in the end, almost ever. That's not how you start a true long life, life lasting romance and, and true love uh, for another person. So I really had such mixed and conflicted feelings about this whole scene, but that's kind of where I left off with it. I just wanted to express that. No, I appreciate that. And I agree with regard to the fact that the accelerated intimacy to bed comes from the fact that I believe bed is the culmination. That's the pinnacle. And I think what it does is it now cheapens their relationship. Because if you're saying, I need to get you in bed to culminate this relationship, to make it matter, then how do you get everything else after that? Like, what else is valuable? Now sex just becomes... Just another thing. It's what we do at night. It's a misunderstanding of that intimacy. Regardless of whether it's same sex or heterosex, sexual intimacy, it should be that. It should be intimate. And it should be the culmination of this not lustful feeling that you have from someone that you just discovered their name as you're making out with them. Again, if I'm going to change the story, I'm going to say the next scene is three years later where they're acting like an old married couple. And it's kind of funny. But at this point, I'd rather us shift to a year later or six months later or go through a little montage and watch them sort of interact with each other, grow this relationship. And then if you're going to show that, show it after all those things. They've actually invested in each other in order to bring value to that special night. And to, to someone who sees marriage as something really important, that's what that looks like. I'm not advocating in an episode like this, you got to get married before you have sex. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that just like the path is the same, there's a period of time where you are 
intimately connecting with someone, not just physically, but more so emotionally and intellectually and mentally, you're, you're finding ways to just attach yourself like the cordyceps. I mean, in some ways, you're just like, you're finding ways to become more intimate as people. And so that companionship that you talked about, that is very, very much genuine. Like Bill's looking at Frank as like, hey, this guy wants to have dinner. If they were just buds, if they were just like Jonathan and David, if they're like me and you, this would be one of those things where that partnership, that friendship would feel meaningful because it is spread out over a long period of time before, if there's a romantic involvement, that then gets to be the payoff. This feels like a cheap date. Okay, Frank's prostituting himself because he hasn't gotten laid in however long he's using Bill. Oh, and so to soften that blow, we're going to move three years later to them acting like a catty old married couple where now we have Frank saying, I want to spruce up the town because the town needs to feel lived in. It needs to feel, you know, like we're not in a war zone. That's funny, but the intent from that gets lost on me because I'm like, <laughs> like I'm sort of distracted by what's just happened. And so when you've gotten this fight that's happening, that's supposed to be sort of like, oh yeah, this is what married people do, or this is what, you know, couples, and you're sort of laughing and trying to enjoy that. My distraction came around and I couldn't necessarily enjoy that as much as I wanted to. Now it's good writing. And I love the point that Frank makes here that he's like, we can't live like military people. We can't live this life of oppression. Like we're always on the you know, look out for the bad things. We have to think about things that are good. We have to be able to live our lives. And so I don't disagree with the fact that he wants to spruce up little pieces of the town. Not everything he says, but just little pieces there. You know, he mentions he's been talking to a nice woman on the radio <laughs> to which Bill is not happy. And that scene, it's trying to establish something, but I don't feel like it's been earned at that point. Yeah, that's fair. I'm just super conflicted about a lot of the things because of this that I've tried to express. One of the other reasons I get conflicted is because I genuinely think that there is something very honest about choosing a person to love and making a commitment and sticking to it regardless. And so there's a part of me that's like, if we could have spaced out getting to that point, I would have appreciated it more because it would have felt like there's a reason to make that commitment and choose that person. Yeah. And so I, I like the fact that they get to have companionship for the rest of their life. Like that's important in a world where you don't have anybody. I understand that fully. I did have fun with the cattiness and I actually thought it was hilarious to cut from the bed scene to the F you. Like that's the first words <laughs> again, like with good transitions by the showrunners in yeah. this fight. And I love what Frank says. He says, paying attention to things. It's how we show love. This is my street too. Just let me love it the way I want to. And I was like, he's not wrong. Nope. There's a balance here to that. You got to have some beauty with the protection or else what are you living for other than yeah. just to live, just to stay alive. Um, and I like that. And I like the, the little nod as well to like telling us, oh, he's talking. We know he's talking to Tess um, <laughs> as an audience. Bill, yeah. Bill does not know them until they have lunch. Yeah, this little garden party, as I call it, because they're outside, they're enjoying some nice wine and just having having a good time. Joel and Tess are sharing that meal with them. Tess is looking good. Anna Torv, she's looking not beat up by scavengers and battery stealers and whatnot. So this is nice. They're ultimately trying to team up and help each other, to which Bill reluctantly agrees um, after, I think, like, <laughs> I wrote in my previous notes that I think Frank and Tess are kind of like the same people. They're like, oh, let me show you the inside. Let me show you what I've done with the place. And Tess is like, cool, show me. Like this is, it's a very like, I would call it a very feminine character trait, not a female necessarily or what a woman does, but there's a there's a femininity to it that I think Frank alludes to in that earlier scene. And it's nice to see that Tess sort of is in agreement with them. And then you have Bill and Joel. <laughs> Bill's got the gun on the, uh, on the table. <laughs> The friendship's been established. This is sort of the connecting piece that we're like, okay, this is how they end up connecting with, with Bill and Frank. We move another three years later. The fences have now been reinforced with vehicles. Joel says something in the previous scene about, listen, this fence is not going to hold. 
you give me this and I'll give you galvanized steel or whatever it is that's going to reinforce for years and years and years. And Bill's like, we're fine, you know, (laughs) but apparently they're not fine because we see now cars stacked up in front of the fence. Bill and Frank are on this nice jog around the neighborhood. Again, normalizing what it's like to live there. And then there's a nice moment where Frank surprises Bill with some strawberries that he's been growing. They have not had, I guess they don't have fruit in their in their garden. And he says, where did you get that? And Frank says, I traded Joel and Tess one of your guns for a packet of seeds. Which gun? A little one. I like this scene because I think it sort of amplifies what you were talking about, about their companionship and the way in which Frank is showing love to the things that are around him. And this is sort of a gift to Bill, to which Bill, I think, says, um, I was never afraid before you showed up, which is an indication that he was never vulnerable. So I think that that's meant to be spun in a positive way, and that's how I took it. Yeah, when you're only worried about your own survival, it's different than, it's like being a parent. Like, now you've got these little humans that matter more than your life and that you are worried about. And that's how he is feeling. I love that scene too. The fact that he essentially cries when he takes a bite of the strawberry. And I just, I just wrote down, like, I can't even imagine, like, can you fathom not eating something like a fresh piece of fruit for 10 years or whatever it's been? And it would be overwhelming, I think in that same way. And I think the show did a great job of showing that to us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that night, I think, as Joe predicted, Raiders are showing up and are getting burned by the trash. Raiders of the Lost Ark? Uh, they're Raiders of the Lost Virus at this point because they Sorry. don't have yeah, <laughs> or the lost fungus. And, uh, We're recording this on the night that the new Indiana Jones movie comes out, so I had to make a joke. Oh, my gosh. The dial of goofiness, the dial of CG. Okay. Um, so this is probably something that made you happy, Aaron, not that people were getting burned, but this is just another great use of traps. And, uh, it's, I mean, it's lit really well. I don't know if the town itself is lit up with torches, but there's a really fantastic moment where I think Frank comes out and you see Bill in the streets with his gun and you see Raiders on fire behind this fence and everything's just sort of lit up. Like it's a mob or something. And I couldn't tell if those were people that were being burned or trying to invade the town, or if that was Bill's sort of defense mechanism by like, light them up. And, um, you know, this is, I think where Bill shines as a survivalist, because he's not afraid to both give shots and take shots. And he took a shot for sure. So from that point, after he gets shot, he says to Frank, I'm ready to die. And Frank, like Frank is like, no, you're not. This is one of those cuts that I think is so brilliant because we're now 10 years later and it's Frank who's in a wheelchair. We assume that Bill is going to have passed away or something is going to be happening to him. Yes. We're like, what? (laughs) Frank is in a wheelchair and he's significantly older Bill is watering flowers. And I thought this was such a great choice because the survivalist would never be caught watering flowers. He's going to be polishing and cleaning his guns and killing for dinner and things like that. And he has taken up the mantle of domestication. He has found value in being able to take care of the small things while Frank has taken up painting. Uh, from his wheelchair. And then there's this quiet dinner and then bedtime. And it's it's like this insinuation that this is their routine now. They probably haven't had a lot of raiders come in. They haven't had a lot of visitors, you know, unwanted visitors. And so they've just sort of made this life as an older couple to be able to just say, this is the rhythm that we have, watering flowers and painting and eating and just sharing quietness together. And there, there's something really nice about that because you you find a rhythm with a person that you've been with for so long that that kind of stuff becomes very comfortable. It's like a security blanket that you sort of embrace and that if there's any kind of changing of that, it kind of thwarts things a little bit. So I thought that was that was a really nice way to show that off. I agree. I thought it was, it would have been a good way to end it. <laughs> I'll just say I, that. I, th- I think you're right. Just yeah. continue on. Yeah. Well, it didn't end. Uh, The next day, Frank gets out of bed, 
in the middle of the night, apparently, uh, to get in his chair. And he says, because this is my last day. And Bill's like, no, it's not. So they're in this living room. And <laughs> it's such an interesting scene because the living room looks so, like, domesticated. It's like this Afghan on the couch. And they're sitting there as, like, an old couple, like, Frank, you're getting older. I'm get-. It's, it's, It almost feels a little farcical. <laughs> but I know it's not meant that way. Frank begins to outline how he wants his best last day to go. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And finally he holds up these pills. You're going to crush these and put them in my wine. And I had a really, really hard time with this. I'm like this assisted suicide. That's not, that's not romantic in any capacity. I don't care how you spin it. That's not okay. And I fully embrace my personal conviction about that. Like this disgusted me because as much as you're trying to spin this as like, okay, we're going to spend our last days together. Uh, we're going to quote, get married. And then you're going to make a nice dinner and how this is going to finish us off. I wasn't okay with that. Now, how would I solve that? I don't know. So I fully admit that I wouldn't necessarily in this moment be able to say what a better way is, but my personal conviction just sort of supersedes my ability to enjoy this thing, because it's just like you're saying life isn't worth continuing to move on because these guys aren't brain dead. They're, they're not debilitated. They're just getting old. (laughs) Okay. Deal with that. Live with it. Embrace that. Celebrate the fact that you're growing old together. And Bill, grow a pair knowing that Frank's not going to be around. Grieve in, a, in the right way. Because for me, doing that basically says you're giving up and you have an inability to grieve in a healthy way. We lose people. And that's hard. And I fully respect the grief that people go through. But if you don't grieve properly or if you shortchange your own life because of the fact that you don't want to deal with that, to me, that feels a little cheap. I get that that's not everybody's opinion or perspective, but that's just that's how I felt in that moment. There's a line that Bill says towards the very end, and he says, This isn't the tragic suicide at the end of the play. I'm old. I'm satisfied. And you were my purpose. And this one sentence (laughs) gives me like a million different feelings. So I'm going to break this down real quick. This isn't a tragic, the tragic suicide at the end of the play. False. It is. It's exactly what it is. You're literally killing yourself because you don't want to live without the other person, which is exactly how the tragic suicide at the end of the play, i.e. Romeo and Juliet, works. So... It's meant to be this like lyrical, poetic phrase, but it is 100% a straight up falsity. The next piece, I'm old and I'm satisfied. I love that. I love the acknowledgement of that and the, I understand that and can see why I like him saying like, I've had a good life and I've been blessed that you have been here to be my companion for X number of years versus having to go through this all alone and I'm old and I'm scared of what might come next. I think that's part is beautiful. The And you were my purpose. Also a super romantic thing. Also a major, major, major problem. Two things. One, if you are a person of like Christian faith or many other faiths, your purpose is your God or your higher power, not a human being. And then even if you take it out of a religious context, I will say this. I have been guilty of this in my life, in my past marriages, where I made someone too much of my purpose. I made them and put them on this pedestal to where I needed them to fulfill every single box and every single need for me. That is an unfair expectation to put on someone. And that is exactly what Bill has unwittingly and as poetically written as he is making this statement has done, is he is saying, life is not worth living without you. And that is putting that person above all else in a way that is unhealthy. And I have a real problem with as well. And it's it's impossible for me to morally just kind of get past that. I also think just if you want to go at it from a completely logical perspective, from someone who doesn't want to get a ball in their feelings like I am, it's irrational. What if the next Frank walked into your pit of doom or whatever <laughs> the next day? What if it was a little girl seeking refuge who was about to be eaten by a bunch of infected, but you were there 
and you could have saved her? What if she became your new companion until the end of your days? What if she took care of you? What if you had someone to pass on knowledge to, share a meal with, again, after Frank was gone? There's a million reasons, and it's because life is a mystery, Patrick. We don't know what the next day is going to bring, and the presumption that your life is over if and when Frank dies, to me, is completely unfair and selfish and presumptuous and all sorts of words that have a negative connotation and didn't like it. And I didn't find it romantic because of those reasons. And so, yeah, it really put a sour note on the end of their relationship for me and didn't give me the intended feeling that I know the showrunners were trying to go for with, I will say, (laughs) one of the most beautiful pieces of music I may have ever heard in my life. It's called On the Nature of Daylight by Max Richter Orchestra and Lorenz Dangle. And it is the most melancholic, beautiful musical piece that plays throughout this whole scene. But yeah, it doesn't work for me. No. So, rant over. Okay. <laughs> so we'll move on from that because I think we both said our piece. And sometime later, we catch back up with Joel and Ellie who show up to what looks like an abandoned town. It happens to be Bill's town, Bill and Frank's town. Uh, the fence is not active. The house looks run down and the flowers are dead. Sad face. So we're meant to believe this is several years later because I can't imagine... Wouldn't that be weird if they showed up like the day after this thing happens? Like that would be just weird. In fact, there's a part of me that thought that's what happened until I looked at my surroundings and said no. Again, also robbing Tess and Joel of friendship. Yeah. And help. I mean, knowing what's going on in that part of the world. Anyway. Yeah. Yes. It would be weird. Yeah. That's not the case because we see dust on the counter and on the dinner table the food is rotting and so clearly this has been a while and there's no sign of bill and frank but there's remnants of that last night and ellie finds a letter from bill she starts reading it bill and frank are dead and as she reads it one of the things that stood out to me was his line with regard to taking care of tess where she hesitates to read that but he says that's why you and i are here we have a job to do to take care of people I think that in light of what Bill ended up becoming the caretaker for, who he became the caretaker for, for Frank, that makes sense. I don't think that's tone deaf. But again, the way that that letter reads, if I didn't know anything about the last 45 minutes, it would have been a really interesting mystery to think about. Like, I mean, who was this guy? And I think that would have left some kind of level of, wow, there's a life that I can imagine these two people living based off of the context of this letter without having necessarily seen it. And I think that would have provided a little bit more of the romantic insinuations that we were trying to get through in the last 45 minutes, because the letters read and written so well that leaves me sort of wanting, but I've already seen. So I don't really want at this point. Nevertheless, it was effective for what the episode pushes forward in the next few minutes though. Yeah, I actually really loved her reading the note as well. She still can't again get a gun, even though there's a wall of them. <laughs> and Joel's, <laughs> there's literally a whole room full of guns. And she's like, there's a wall of them. And Joel's like, no, even though she does steal one, by the way. Yes. Uh, she finally does get a gun, but not <laughs> because Joel gave it to her. Yes. And I like the banter coming back. I, I realized how much I'd missed it, not having it going from it in the beginning of this episode and then not having it for 45 minutes. And when she's like, Joel, go take a shower. And then first time in a car, it's like a spaceship. And I thought that was beautiful because it's a nod to Ellie's fascination with space. Mm -hmm. And then also just when she is reading the note, she's reading about how Joel was the only one who would have gotten through his traps. And she says, (laughs) she sounds it out. So like Bill had clearly written he, 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 and she just, verbalizes it as she's reading the note. And it was just, I yeah. thought it was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I literally laughed out loud in that moment. He, he, and it brought he, me he, back he, from he, the, he, he, the place he, yeah. we'd been in, yeah. you know, for 45 <laughs> minutes. So I, I thought that was great. Yeah. And it's a nice reminder of her naivety, how this is, we, we take for granted. We assume that Ellie knows what we know. And it, it reminds me a lot of the fact that I think about my child who's 10 years old at the time of this recording 
he's never going to know a life before 9-11. He's never going to go uh, know a life before the internet or before streaming or being able to DVR shows and move backwards and forwards. And I think Ellie in that moment sort of <laughs> is that way where we assume that she knows what we know because we're watching this in a particular time period and things are fascinating to her, you know, reading a letter phonetically like that or getting into a truck and not knowing what a seatbelt is. It's just like, ah, she's learning. She's curious. And the show ends, the episode ends with her changing into that iconic red shirt. They get into that truck. She finds a tape. And of course, it's Linda Ronstadt and the song that we're familiar with from earlier in the episode. And they take off. And uh, that's how the episode leaves us with that iconic blue truck. They leave Billstown and we're off to the next episode. All yes, right. Indeed. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode of an original series. Let's see what's coming up next. The episode is called Please Hold to My Hand. I was going to call it Please Hold My Hand, but there's a preposition in there. Please Hold to My Hand, I think is what it's called. I don't quite. That doesn't make any sense. I don't. I don't. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I mistyped it, but I think it says Please Hold to My Hand. So I could be wrong. <laughs> Aaron, if you want to clarify or you know, make sure I'm not going to mess that up in the. Uh, <laughs> in the uh the podcast uh recording schedule or whatever but in any case it's uh it's episode four you're correct okay okay i'm not crazy <laughs> so yeah i've i've actually forgotten what this episode's about the, the rest of these episodes i know what happens based off the title but this is like hmm interesting title i'm excited to revisit whatever this is what chapter we're on in the game or if we've deviated some more so who knows but uh we'll be back to discuss that um next time so thank you for tuning in and joining this conversation i'm patch he's aaron and we are out of here <laughs>